Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a lot to discuss. We're getting ready for Pesach. We've got the sin of the golden calf. We've got the whole idea of the Mishkan fixing the sin of the golden calf. How does that happen? What was the test of the golden calf all about to begin with? What was God looking for from us? How is the Mishkan fixing that? The tabernacle in the desert, they seem to be completely unrelated. And yet we're told one is definitely a fixing for the other. How does Parshas Para, which is the ashes of the red heifer, how is that getting us ready for Pesach exactly? The fact that it's a total paradox. How does a paradox prepare us for freedom how does a paradox prepare us for spiritual purity? That's, these are all questions that we want to address. How do all of these questions tie together into one coherent answer? I don't know. But let's just start. <laughs> I want to start with the idea of the not knowing of Purim. So Purim into Pesach is one of the great, beautiful logical, spiritual progressions of the whole year, and I would even say in Judaism, period. Because remember, Purim is, every day is Purim. If you had to pick one day, one holiday, that every day is most like, it's Purim. And the reason is because Purim is all about when you can't see God knowing that God is there, and that God is still loving you, and God is still saving you and protecting you. So that is that is our everyday life. Remember, one of the interesting things about the Jewish calendar, and when you talk about the Jewish calendar, you're talking about more than just an arrangement of months and dates and everything like that. We're talking about the sanctification of time. The chief element, believe it or not, that defines our humanity is that we're immersed within time. That's something that, that most people don't, wouldn't think of it that way. But Kabbalistically speaking, the thing that separates the heavens and the earth is the concept of time. There is a realm that is beyond time, above time. And all of the things like the Sitra Achra, the Yetzirah, evil, free choice, opposition, all of those things only exist within the realm of time. And time itself is temporary. Isn't that funny? That time is temporary. Time is not going to last forever. And one of the goals of creation, the Pisgah Sharm says it very clearly, one of the goals that we're here in this world for, you ready for this? Is to lift the world above the dimension of time. In other words, to instill foreverness into all of our actions. And not only that, but that during the year, especially on the holidays, these drops come down from the Garden of Eden. And do you know what drips into this world? Foreverness, eternity, timelessness. I experienced this only a few times in my life. The time that I most remember is when my youngest daughter was born. And I was sitting with my wife in the hospital. And I experienced this sense of timelessness. Like I didn't want to go anywhere. There was nothing else to do. All that existed was right now. One of the ideas of the mitzvot, because the mitzvot are coming from the highest, highest place is that when you do a mitzvah, you actually invest that moment with timelessness. You make that moment forever. Part of the creation of the world was this process called shviras hakelim, the shattering of the vessels. So light is now going to flow from pure spirituality into being this compacted form of materiality. That's this process called simsim. The first step is God creates these vessels to put the light in. Now remember, there are no vessels. 
All the imagery that we're talking about right now is just to have something to wrap your mind around. Right? We're in a realm right now before anything. Okay? But we talk about light going into these vessels. And the vessel shatters. One of the things that God creates when he creates vessels is the creation of time. That's one of the steps in terms of the creation of the material universe. One of the first steps that God takes is the creation of time. Okay? What's so interesting is that the vessel then shatters. So I just thought, you know, on the deepest level, that God creates time and then he also shatters the existence of time. There's a narrative there. God is talking about the history of time. The very creation ends with its destruction. That's the shattering of the vessels on the level of time. So God creates time and then destroys time because this world is filled with time, but in the end of the end of the end of the end of days, there will be no time. And I think that on a deep level, we sense our mortality. We sense the fact that the clock is ticking. And I think that's one of the reasons why our soul craves mitzvot. Because intuitively, when we do a mitzvah, we understand that we've attached ourselves to something that's absolutely forever. That there's something beyond us. What is this aspect of that which is beyond? It can be very frustrating. It's always out of reach. It's beyond, it's beyond, it's beyond. But what if I could take that thing which is out of reach and put it inside myself? That's what happens when we do mitzvot. And sometimes it's an action, and sometimes it's refraining from an action. Isn't that interesting? That's why Shabbos is so holy. When I'm inside Shabbos, I've situated in myself in this divine space that's beyond. Like I'm dwelling in the beyond. That's why Shabbos is such a fortress. Because you get to live knowing on some level that you're living forever. <laughs> because you're not just in the moment, you're beyond moments. Because you've been freed from time. Because nothing needs to be done. And not only does nothing need to be done, even if something does need to be done, you're commanded not to do it. You know, you can ask yourself, there's so many expectations and there's so much to do. Isn't it enough ever just to exist? <laughs> like, what about my, just my inherent value? The fact that I'm a piece of Hashem. When is it just enough that I just exist because I represent just this creation of God? That's Shabbos. I am inherently valued just by virtue of the fact that I exist. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So Purim is all about when you don't see God, he's still there and he's still with us. Now Purim always takes place in the month of Adar. Adar is this month of darkness because it's the 12th month of the year, the furthest month of, year, of the year away from Nisan. Remember, Nisan has the word nes in it, which means miracles. Pesach happens during the month of miracles, which makes sense, total freedom, total redemption. The sages say that the gula shlema, the, 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 the final redemption is going to happen during the month of Nisan. And so on the one hand, the darkness of Purim, the darkness of the month of Adar. Remember, what's the mazel, the zodiac sign of Adar? It's the fish. When you're underwater, it's dark. So Adar is darkness. But you want to hear something crazy? It's also the month of joy. 
So based on that, I want to make a mathematical formula. If you want to reveal God in the darkness, the way you do it is through joy. Joy reveals God, that God is there. And it's true. When you're depressed, God is not there. Or you don't feel that God's there. God's always there. But you don't feel it. When you're happy, what happens? You turn on a light. Right? You're grateful for all the things that you have. So joy reveals the presence of God. So I think that that's one very key correlation about why Adar, which is this month of darkness, this month of hiddenness, this holiday of Purim, which is all about the hiddenness of God. Remember in Megillus Esther, which we read on Purim, the whole story of Purim, God's name isn't mentioned once. It's all about hiddenness. And yet we read it in the month of joy because joy reveals God's presence. And Purim is all about the fact that God is still here even when I don't see him. Megillus Esther, Esther is from Hester Punim, the hiddenness of God's face, is the root of Gilui, sorry, Gilui. Gilui means to reveal. So Megillus Esther means revealing God's hiddenness. So the very document about God's hiddenness is called the revelation of God's presence. <laughs> is that something? And we do that through joy. Now, I think that this is fascinating because on the one hand, Adar, the month of Purim, the month of darkness and hiddenness and all the rest, is the furthest holiday away from Pesach, from the month of Nisan, the month of light. Nisan is the first month of the year. Adar is the 12th month of the year. Light, revelation is all the way at the top. Darkness, hiddenness is all the way at the bottom. But then you know what happens? What is the month right after Adar? Nisan, the month of light. <laughs> and not only do they connect, they actually overlap. Because if you look at the story of Purim, the climax of Purim happens on Pesach. Purim happens on Pesach. What do I mean by that? The wine feast where Haman is exposed as the enemy of Esther and the Jewish people happens on Pesach. Look at the dates in the Megillah. You'll see. It says it very clearly. Which is amazing because what it means is, is that even darkness is subsumed in light. Even darkness is subsumed in light. Now let's develop that thought for a moment, right? Because Purim is really born on... So the darkness which contains God, even in the darkness, but the darkness springs from light. Which means even darkness is filled with light. But let's take a step back for a moment. Here's what most people think, and it's incorrect. In the very beginning, all there was darkness, and God said, let there be light. Okay. There's a reason why people say that, because it says it in the Torah. <laughs> You're not crazy. <laughs> However, context is everything. You have to have context. So, here's what most people think. Everything was completely dark. So, darkness is the foundation of the world. And then God shined a light. Right? The world, reality, is really a very dark place. And then God shined a light. This is what most people think. And it's incorrect. Why? Because before there was a world, there was God. And one of the names of God is Or Ein Sof, which means light without end. Which means the reality doesn't start with darkness. Reality starts with God, and God is the ultimate light. The foundation of absolutely everything is light. 
and darkness is the creation. Light is not the creation. Darkness is the creation. All there is is light. But then God creates darkness. So do you understand how now it makes perfect sense that Purim, which is all about darkness, the holiday springs out of Pesach, which is all about light and revelation. It's just like the creation of the world. Because first comes light, then comes darkness. Darkness is the creation. Light is not the creation. Light is the ultimate reality because light is connected to God. And God existed before the world was created. So it's all about light. So it's not just that we have the month of Adar, which is darkness, the 12th month, and then all of a sudden the month of darkness comes into the month of light. Darkness becomes light. We do have a saying, and it's, it's really a Torah idea, that it's always, it's always darkest before the dawn. Right? Sometimes, like, we have really hard times, but the hard times are getting us ready for the good times. They're preparing vessel, right? Like Rabbi Nachman says that sometimes, you know, what happens is God is like, it's tzimtzum. God is like basically contracting his light so that he can bring down this light to the person. And that's, that we experience through difficulties, but it's just preparing us, making us a vessel to receive something higher. One of the greatest things I ever heard in my life from Reb Shlomo, it's a very long story, so I'm just going to cut to the end of it, okay? But basically there was this Jew and he was in a lot of trouble. His life was being threatened. He was almost beaten to death. But the Noam Elimelech, whose yard site it is on the 21st of Adar, that's this Monday, people from all over the world are going to be flying to Lezhensk. They're flying right now to Lezhensk in preparation for the earth site, right now. All over the world, people are flying to Lezhensk in Poland. So the Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech, you have to say the Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech. You can't say just Rebbe Elimelech, okay? The Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech gave this person a certain amount of advice that ended up working out well. Not only was his life saved, but he became rich and he was dirt poor. After a period of time, he and his wife realized that they never thanked the Rebbe Rebbe Limelech, so they go to see him. And the Chos of Lublin, who was also one of the greatest, greatest Hasidic masters, he was a student of the Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech. And he tried to hide this person when his life was in danger because he told him that basically they were going to kill him. And by the way, the Chosa was right. They were, they were trying to kill him and they almost did kill him. They almost beat him to death. But the Rebbe Rebbe Limelech gave advice that turned out to be, it sounded crazy at the time, but it turned out to be very good advice. And not only did it save his life, but it made him rich. So they're coming to thank him. And here's the point of everything that I'm telling you right now. The Rebbe, Rebbe Limelech, turned to the Chose of Lublin and he said to him, you saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad time ahead, but I saw the good time after the bad time. This story is so holy that Rebbe, Shlomo says that when you tell this story to anyone, that you have to hold their hand while you're telling them the story. You saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad time ahead, but I saw the good time after the bad time. Like if you wanna climb the ladder in terms of spirituality, right? And you have to take it a rung at a time. There's no skipping steps. You have to be one of those people that doesn't just see the bad time ahead, but you also have to be aware of the good time after the bad time. And just to carve that into your heart. 
So the idea is there's another connection between timing in the Purim story and in the sin of the golden calf. We, we miscalculated by six hours in terms of when Moshe was supposed to come down from the mountain, so we thought that he was dead. And in the Purim story, it begins with this great feast that Ahasuerus is inviting his entire kingdom, which is basically the known world at that time to. And one of the reasons why this decree comes down on the Jewish people, according to the Gomorrah, is because we attended this feast. Well, what was so bad about this attending the party of the king? The party of the king was he was wearing the big day kahuna, the vestments, the clothing of the Kain Gadol, the high priest of Israel, because the 70-year prophecy that the Jews were going to return back to the land after 70 years, after the destruction of the first holy temple, according to their calculations, had passed without the Jews returning, which means that the Jews showing up we were celebrating or participating in a celebration that we were never returning to the land. And so God says, you're basically abandoning your mission in this world, so what do I need you for? Of course, none of that happened, right? But what's interesting is this idea that we thought that time period of the 70 years was up, but it wasn't just like we thought that period where Moshe was supposed to come down and didn't come down. And I just have to throw in my, my favorite story from Rabbi Nachman, that there's two people are collecting, two impoverished people are, are collecting back in the day, right? And one is Jewish and one is not Jewish. And the Jewish one says to the not Jewish one, come with me to shul tonight, to the synagogue, you're, you're in for something special. Tonight is, is Pesach night. And no one is going to be left in the shul without being brought to someone's home. <clears throat> and you're going to get a great meal tonight. So the non-Jew goes with him. And sure enough, each of them are invited to someone's home. And the next day, the Jew says to the non-Jew, So, did I tell you? Was it good? And the non-Jew says... I, I went to the person's house and they're not serving the food. All they're doing is talking and they're talking and they're talking and they're talking. And then after all this talking, they give you a, a one piece of parsley. <laughs> and then they're talking some more. And then they give you this bitter herb, which is terrible. After that, I stood up and I said, all of you people are crazy. And I stormed out the door. And the Jew says back to him, I if you had only waited. If you had only waited a little longer, you would have gotten a great meal. So, you know, it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of patience to be able to wait for the good news after the bad news. Right? Remember what Rebbe Melech of Lugens said to the Chos of Lublin. You saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad time coming, but I saw the good time after the bad time. Because remember, there's a happy ending for everybody. Everybody has a happy ending. The world has a happy ending because Mashiach comes. Each one of us has Olam Haba, Right? By the way, this, this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not a joke, and it's from the Rambam. He says, do you know why there's so many mitzvahs? There's so many mitzvahs so that it's impossible to get through this world without doing one. So that God can give you olam haba, the world to come. So every single person has, on an individual level, has olam haba waiting for them, the next world waiting for them. And remember, it says, if you take all the pleasures of your life, every good, wonderful moment that you ever had in your life, and you roll them all up into one ball, one moment in the next world outshines all of the pleasures of your entire life, one moment in the next world. So every individual has a happy ending at the end of their lives. We should all live long. And then the world itself has a happy ending. 
So you'll never be wrong looking to the good time after the bad time. You'll never be wrong. Okay. Now I want to get to this whole idea of how the sin of the golden calf is fixed by the Mishkan. And before, while all of this is going on, we've also got Parsha's Parah. So what's Parsha's Parah all about? So there are four special readings, Haftorahs, that we do leading up to Pesach. One of them is called Parsha's Parah. Parsha's Parah is when we read about people becoming ritually pure so that they can go into the Mishkan or the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, to bring the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering. That was a very important sacrifice. That was your membership dues, your yearly membership dues of the Jewish people. Everyone had to do it. And if you didn't, it was an Isra Karas. A person's soul gets cut off. Very, very important. So everyone is participating in this, which means everyone has to be in a place of ritual purity because you couldn't go into the holy temple in a state of being spiritually impure. So you had to really like make sure that you brought, you, you had to make sure that you, if you were in contact with the dead, that that puts someone in a state of something called tame mace. That's a spiritual impurity, right? When we're talking about things like this, it's not about hygiene. It's not about like you need a shower or something like this. This is a state of your soul, okay? So Judaism is really about life. You know, one of the names that we say about God is l'chai olamim, right? To the one who lives forever. So life is really sacred. Life is really holy. By the way, this is one of the, it sounds so basic now, but this is one of the far out concepts that Judaism brought to the world. That you can't just kill people. Like in the ancient world, they were like, what's the difference between you and a chair? I honestly don't know. What's the difference between you and a piece of meat? I really don't know. So why can't I kill you? And the idea that, that life was like infinitely precious and people's feelings were infinitely precious. Like, this is totally Judaism's gift to the world. Transform the entire world. You know, you look at what's happening in, in this Russian-Ukrainian war. I don't know if you're following it, but I'm reading about it almost every day, maybe multiple times a day. It's, they're, just, they're just literally just ushering people to their death in order to find out where the snipers are on the other side. They just send waves of, they go to prisons and they promise these prisoners in Russia, they promise them a deal and you'll be able to get out of jail and you'll even be able to make some money. You just have to serve a certain amount of time in the army. We're gonna send you to Ukraine and to a lot of the Prisoners, they're thinking, you know, that's not a bad idea. You know, I've got a 10-year sentence here. I serve, you know, however many months, and then I'm a free man and maybe with some money in my pocket. These people are being sent into right to their deaths just so they can see, okay, that guy got shot from the person in the building over there. There's a sniper over there. No consideration of these people's lives. And not, not just one or two, wave after wave after wave of these people. So, so one of the special readings that we do to get ready for Pesach, it's like a public service announcement, is Parsha's Para, which is about the ashes of the red heifer and it's a, an announcement to the whole Jewish people. Okay, you have time. Pesach's coming. You're going to have to bring your Pesach offering. Make sure you're ritual, ritually pure. Okay. But what's really fascinating about this, to me anyway, is that how we become ritually pure is a paradox. 
It's one of these teachings in the Torah that they say that Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't understand. And he only understood it at the very, very end of his life. Now remember, he went up to Mount Sinai when he was approximately maybe 81, right? The burning bush happens when he's 80. And they say that each plague, there was one a month. So he was approximately 81 when he goes on top of Mount Sinai. So he didn't get it for 40 years, this teaching, after he went up to heaven and received the Torah. So it's, it's got to be pretty deep, right? It says, Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest of men, King Solomon, never got it. He never figured out the logic behind this. So it's considered the ultimate chok, the ultimate super rational teaching in the Torah. I use the word super rational instead of irrational. Irrational means it doesn't make any sense. It makes total sense. We just don't understand it. Super rational means above our ability to rationally comprehend it. So this is the ultimate super rational teaching. And why is it so complex? It's very easy to explain why it's so, why it's so complex. Here is the paradox. How could it be that the ashes, which make you spiritually pure, which remove the impurity of your contact with the dead, how can those same ashes make the one who prepared them spiritually impure? Now, by the way, a lot of people get confused about this, so I just want to make one, one just, you know, one announcement here. The one who sprinkled the finished solution onto the spiritually impure person was not affected by it. He remained spiritually pure. It's just the people who prepared the ashes. Okay. You know, I figured out an explanation to this. <laughs> and I told Reb Shlomo, and he said, that's a good answer. <laughs> he really liked it. But the thing is, is that when you figure out answers to things like this, you then you have to go back to the idea of that I still don't know. Right? So, so then you have to take what you know and take that into the I still don't know. And this is, this is the connection, I think, or a connection between the not knowing of Purim, because Purim is all about your drinking till you get to the place of Adlo Yada. Right? You don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. And you go from that level of not knowing of Purim to, that, to the not knowing of the ashes of the red heifer. So what is, that one, what is that not knowing going into the next not knowing? What is the progression between the two not knowings? And how does not knowing purify me? Because that's what I want to say that an aspect of it is not just the physical reality of having this water sprinkled on you, but the not knowing itself is a purification. You see, in the Haggadah, you see something really interesting. The description of the Chacham, of the four sons, the description of the Chacham, the wise person, and the description of the Rasha, the wicked son, it's almost identical. They both say almost the exact same thing. Like, we jump down the throat of the Russia because he says, what is this to you? But if you look at the language of the Chacham, the Chacham, the wise person, also says you. So why are we like, you know, the Chacham goes first, and we prize the wise person, and, you know, we're like totally like, it says knock out the teeth, of the Russia, <laughs> like we're like, it's so like, do we really talk like that? And yet, and yet yes, absolutely, we're talking, it's right in the Haggadah, we're, we're talking like that about the, the wicked son. 
But if they're both using the same you, then what's going on? So again, we're talking about how not knowing can be a purification. Right? That, that the paradox of the ashes of the red heifer purify you, not just physically, but spiritually. The not knowing purifies you. So what's, why do we praise the Chacham and attack the Russia? And I think that there's a big, there's a very fine line between the two of them. And it's like this. There's two types of knowing. One is when you know something and it only makes you want to know more. That's the knowing of the Chacham. He knows something, but he only wants to know more. It's only making him more curious. Because God is infinite and we're finite. So you'll never run out of learning. One of the things that I'm very proud of, of being a Jew, is that we call our Torah masters. Do you know what we call our Torah masters? Which means, or a Talmud Chacham in the singular, which means a wise student. Now, in, a, in another religion, I could see how you would say, how dare you insult our, our master by calling him a student? But our consciousness is that we never stop learning. So even our greatest, greatest sages remain with the title of student, and they take it on themselves as a covet, as an honor. It's an honor to remain a student. It's an honor to remain in the state of not knowing. That's the Chacham. He knows, but that knowing only makes him want to know more. What about the Russia? The Russia also knows. But his knowing is, I already know. I already know. His knowledge is shutting him down his knowledge is creating arrogance within himself that it shuts him down and he doesn't want to know anymore because he already knows. So there's two types of knowing. The type of knowing that makes you want to know even more and the type of knowing which is imbued with arrogance, I already know. Stop. I don't want to hear anymore. I already know. So what's the fixing for the Russia? He has to learn how to ask questions again. <laughs> so that's, so now we're getting the Russia and we're not just beating up the Russia at the, at the Seder table. We're fixing the soul of the Russia because we're giving the Russia, even if he's asking with arrogance, at least he's asking. And at least he showed up at the table. You know, you're 100% right. They, they talk about the, the, the four sons, but then they talk about the fifth son. Who's the fifth son? There's no fifth son. Exactly. He didn't show up. The fifth son didn't come. Again, context, right? So, so we're fixing the soul of the Rasha, even though he's asking arrogant, arrogantly, what is this to you? But you know, now there's an opening. Now there's an opening. I heard from Rabbi Pesach Kron something very beautiful. And, you know, those of you who, especially with younger children, keep this in mind. And I guess we can do it ourselves and everything like that. But it's, it's a beautiful way that his father raised him when he was younger. And he shared this idea he said that whenever there was a rabbi in town, they would always try to see him, and he would take, his, he would take young Rabbi Pesach Krohn with him. But here's the key point. He would always say to his son, ask the rabbi a question. Because he, and and he, would make, he would make his son ask the rabbi a question. And that way he inculcated in him, right, this 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 idea that it's good to ask questions, that it's holy to ask questions, right? And that we can ask questions for the rest of our lives. So now let's get 
back to why not knowing is a purification. Because when I don't know, now I open myself up for something higher. When I do know, I shut myself off from something higher coming in. It says in the Gomorrah that God runs from an arrogant person. You know why? Because the arrogant person is completely shut off. He can't receive. Right? God says to the arrogant person, so to speak, you already know everything, so what do you need me for? But to be in a place of not knowing, then you open yourself up to receive. It's a very high state. So that's why it's not just a physical thing, the fact that the ultimate purification, the ultimate purification, the paraduma, has to be a paradox. Because if we can understand it, then we can ultimately get to a place of knowing. And the gift of the paraduma, even when we don't have it physically, we don't have a, a red heifer to sprinkle the water on us today, but we have the paradox of the red heifer, which keeps us pure. Because that paradox keeps us humble and keeps us open and keeps us asking. So it has to be a paradox. Do you understand? I'll say something else. There's a progression from the not knowing of Purim to the not knowing of Parsha's para, the paradox of the paraduma. The not knowing of Purim is an emotional intellectual state that we reach through drinking or like Rabbi Nachman says, Avas Yisrael, loving your fellow Jew, you can get to a place of being beyond, 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 not knowing the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai, or by taking a nap, right? Like the Rambam says, we don't know the difference when we're asleep. All these states are ultimately emotional or intellectual. The not knowing of the paraduma blossoms into physicality. The emotions and the intellect and the soul blossoms into your physical self. It's your physical reality. Because these are waters that have to be sprinkled on your body. So this not knowing, you become an embodiment of your not knowing. Right? I thought of something. I was thinking about these type of things during Shachris this morning. I thought it would be a really nice, almost like animated series. Like I, I just thought of a floating question mark. And that the characters grab onto the question mark. They ask a question and they grab onto the question mark. And the question mark floats them to another time or another place for the answer to their question, right? Some adventure. But this idea of a floating question mark that you can hold on to that takes you places, right? So let's get to the Mishkan. How is the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle in the desert? Remember, the Mishkan is the prototype for the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And the rabbis teach us that the Mishkan, this building, this tent in the desert, is fixing the sin of the golden calf. So this is a little bit mysterious. <laughs> how, how is a building or a tent fixing the sin of the golden calf? They, they seem utterly unrelated. Okay. So I want to say that it's fixing it on two levels. The first level is it's allowing us to correct what we did wrong. We'll do that one quickly because the next one I think is more exciting. The next one is what were we supposed to do right that we didn't do? And how does the Mishkan allow us to do that right thing that we shouldn't have done, that we should have done, but didn't do, that we can still do? <laughs> In other words, the Mishkan is not just correcting what we did wrong. It's giving us an opportunity to do right again. The opportunity that we missed the first time by doing wrong. Okay. So... So what happened? We panicked. 
That's what happened. All sorts of bad things happen in life when a person panics. I, I heard some very good advice, which is before you make a major decision in your life, have a night's sleep on it. You know, I think that's even an expression. Let me give it a night's sleep. Because somehow, you know, like you get like a, there's a light of newness that enters into your soul every morning and you, you think about it differently, you have a little bit of perspective on it. It's, it's very, very good advice. Okay? When you don't give it a night's sleep, your emotions can overwhelm your intellect and then you can really make the wrong decisions and you can make it, you can make a bad thing even worse. And a lot of times the bad thing isn't even as bad as it first seems. If you can get a little bit of time away from it, you realize, okay, it wasn't great, but I can apologize, I can whatever, I, I, can, I can fix it somehow. By the way, that doesn't mean that things are going to go back to the way they were before. But I think we make a mistake when we think about, oh, you know, because I did this, or because I didn't do that, I messed everything up, and it could have been like it was before. But can I tell you something? Before is also an evolving thing. In other words, the before is not this golden period that, that remains that way also. That also is subject to evolution and decay. <laughs> we always think about the before as this frozen entity of goodness, right? But, you know, that was also going to evolve into something. And maybe it would have evolved into something positive. Maybe it would have stayed positive. Or maybe not. We don't know. So let's not overestimate the goodness of the missed opportunity. Because we don't really know what that missed opportunity was. It doesn't stay frozen as 100% potential. It was going to evolve into something else which may not have been as great as we think about it now, looking back. Okay. So we panicked. The Gomorrah says in Mesech de Shabbos, page 88, that the Satan, remember, that's the heavenly accuser, and it works for God. There's only one power in the world, and that's God. God wanted to test us. So when God is testing us, we use words like the Satan. Not that there's a battle between good and evil, and good is one power, and evil is another power, and they battle against each other. That's not Judaism. There's only one God. There's only one power. And evil works for good. But God wants to bring out the light inside of us. Remember, God puts a piece of himself inside of us. We have infinity within the confines of our finiteness. It's really wild. The baseline of reality is infinity. Just like I told you, the baseline of all of reality is light, not darkness. So we're swimming in infinity, but we're in just this plane of infinity where everything looks finite. But it's a plane of finiteness within the infinite. And that reality is reflected in our internal composition. We've got a piece of the infinite inside our finiteness because the baseline of reality is infinity. So evil works for good. So the Satan, when God wants to test us, what, what is happening? He wants us to bring out this incredible light that's inside of us into the world. How do we bring out this amazing light which is inside of us, this piece of God, into the world to light up the entire world? Through tests. That's a simple explanation, through tests. And remember always what the Kutzke Rebbe says, if you pass a test, God gives you a harder test. And if you fail that test, God gives you an easier test. And it goes on in that way. And if you say, well, wait a second, I don't get it. If I pass a test, why am I getting a bigger test? Well, think about it like this. When you go to the gym and you pick up a 100-pound weight, do you celebrate the next time by picking up a 90-pound weight? 
God says, okay, you can do it. You can do it. Awesome. Okay, now let's get working. Let's see, let's see how much more you can do. Amazing. More light in the world. More light in the world. So, and always remember, by the way, what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says. This is a life-saving teaching. He says, when a person starts to say to themselves, you know what? I want an increase in holiness. So what do they say in heaven? What do they say in heaven when a person says, you know what? I, I, I want to come closer to you, God. Here's what they say. Rabbi Nachman says this very clearly. He says, in heaven they go, really? Really? You want to come closer? Really? We'll give you a test. We'll see if it's true. Can you imagine? I'm telling you, if you know that, it will really make your life a lot more understandable. And then hopefully we never want to stop coming close, right? So we never get out of that category. Okay. So, so it says in the Gemara that God tested us right before Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the tablets. And remember, that was a very big moment because on some level, and this might sound strange to you if you're not used to thinking this way, but I really, you have to, you have to think about what I'm about to tell you right now. On some level, we got the Torah, but on some final, final, final level, we didn't fully complete the process of receiving the Torah. And what do I mean by that? Because Moshe Rabbeinu never got down on firm ground with the tablets. He smashed them before he came down all the way with them. Which means there's a little bit of an orla, a little bit of a barrier still between heaven and earth. Right? The Torah, he brought down the Torah from heaven, but because he didn't land on the ground, because we did the sin of the golden calf, because he smashed the luchos, there remained just a little bit of a separation. Because we did the sin of the golden calf. The sin of the golden calf was done because we panicked. Because the Satan showed us, this was our test, the coffin of, <clears throat> of Moshe Rabbeinu. And the people saw the dead body of Moshe Rabbeinu. It was a mirage. It was an illusion. But we saw it and we panicked. What was the nature of the test? Here's how I understand it. We know what we did. We said, we don't have a go-between between us and God anymore. We need to make a new go-between. So we made a golden calf. And the Ramban explains it that really one of the things on the divine chariot is like an ox. And so it was really in, in their mind like a heavenly bit of imagery. And so there wasn't any real idol worship associated with it. It was just meant to be as a go-between. So we know what we did wrong. But you know, when someone gives you a test, that means that they're looking for the right answer. We're always focused on what we did wrong. I'm more interested in what were we supposed to do right? <laughs> right, if we wanna make progress in our lives, tell me what I was supposed to do right. So I think that this was what we were supposed to do, in my, in my opinion. We were supposed to say, Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest person that ever lived, is no longer with us. Remember, because by the timing of the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to come down from the mountain six hours ago. Six hours. He was six hours late according to their timetable. And so they said, he's not coming anymore. And then they see this image of him being dead. And then they full on panicked and 
We made the golden calf. What should we have done? We should have said the following. We've lost our leader. We've lost the greatest person ever. But we still have you, God. We still have you. We don't need that go-between because we have a direct relationship with you. And this is one of the absolute foundations of Judaism, right, which separates it from many, many, many religions. We have a direct, we have a direct relationship with God. And what did I tell you? There was still, because Moshe didn't land on the ground with the tablets, there was still this little barrier. What is that barrier? That need that we still had for a go-between. That was the barrier. We should have understood we have you directly, God. You know when we had that consciousness that we had God directly? When the Torah was first given at Mount Sinai and God spoke and God said, Anochi, right? I am. And what happened when God spoke? Our souls flew out of our bodies. And when our souls flew out of our bodies, do you know what we saw? That the Torah doesn't just exist in this dimension, it exists in all the heavens. And that God exists in all the heavens, right? We didn't see all of God. But the existence of God, the fact that he's all around us and we're engulfed in godliness, that we're engulfed in the infinite, that was utterly clear. Okay. So, so how does the Mishkan fix the sin of the golden calf? That barrier wasn't just the need to still have a go-between. That barrier was also the fact that we put ourselves in charge and we decided how we are going to serve God and we are going to create this golden calf. We put ourselves as the final authority. And now we created this barrier, not just on the outside, which was the golden calf itself, but we raised ourselves up to a level of final authority. And so on the inside, we also internalized it. Okay. It says, when we ate from the fruit of the, fruit of the tree of knowledge, which the sin of the golden calf is compared to very closely, that we took that which was outside of us, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, and we put it inside of us. By eating of the fruit, we transacted that which was outside of us to that which is inside of us. By making the golden calf, we made this barrier between us and God, this in-between that wasn't necessary at all, and we internalized that barrier by making ourselves the final authority. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I stand between you and God. That's one of the things he said at Mount Sinai. The Moshe Tzarebi says something unbelievable. He says, the I, a person's ego, I, right? Now, just get, take a step back. We're not talking about Moshe now. He goes, he says, Moshe said, I stand between you and God. The Moshe Tzarebi says, a person's ego, the I, stands between them and God, is a barrier between you and God, your own ego. We decided how we were going to serve God. See, if you look at the different, without insulting anyone, God forbid, we're all brothers and sisters. But if you look at other movements within Judaism, as opposed to, say, the, the, the Torah movement, you get that sense I, I, will, I will tell you how I'm going to serve you. I will tell you. And, and again, I'm not trying to step on any toes here, but it's inside out. It's completely inside out. The whole idea is that God is our parent. God is the creator. God is the CEO. You know, one of the halachas, one of the laws of honoring your parents is you don't sit in your parents' chair. You know, I'm so proud of my kids. Do you know, sometimes, and I'm not making this up, I will get a phone call when I'm out of the house. Can I sit in your chair at the kitchen? 
If you don't sit in your father's or your mother's chair, how am I going to be the one who tells God how I am going to serve him? In other words, if it's, it's the ultimate kavachomer, if I can't even sit in my parents' chair, how am I going to tell God I run the show? It makes no sense. So if you look at the completion of the Mishkan, there's a refrain that said over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's coming up in the Torah reading. You, when you, you'll listen for it and you'll hear it. I believe the words are va'asu kain. When it's, it's recounting how we did all the instructions that God told us to do, and it says, and we did it, 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 and we did it. It's over and over again. Which is to say, this is the fix. This is the fixing of the golden calf. Now we're taking God's instructions. And we're following the directions exactly. Okay. That's the fixing of what we did wrong. But now I want to say something deeper, which is what was the fixing of what we were supposed to do right? Remember, when, when someone gives you a test, they're looking for something. God was looking for us to say, I think, that we still have you. Okay, we lost our greatest leader, but we still have you, God. And there's no barrier between us and you. Had we done that, Moshe would have come down with the luchos, and there would have been no barrier between us and God. Now, how does the Mishkan fix that? The Ramban says that the Mishkan was an ongoing recreation of the experience of being at Mount Sinai. Because remember, what was the main thing about Mount Sinai? We get the Torah. What's the main thing about the Mishkan? It housed the luchos, the tablets, in the Holy of Holies that we got at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, there were miracles. When you walked into the Mishkan, there were miracles. So it was this consciousness-expanding place where you walked in and your mind was basically blown. And you realize God is absolutely here. And then, listen carefully, you take that consciousness outside the Mishkan. And you say, God is absolutely everywhere. And then through the Mishkan, we can get to that place that we were supposed to be when we panicked. This idea that we dwell amidst sanctified space. Because think about it. It's weird. The golden calf is an object. How is the Mishkan fixing it? How is sanctified space fixing materiality? They're two different things. One is a space. One is an object. Because the idea was we didn't need the object. We didn't need the go-between because God is everywhere. And what the Mishkan does is it restores our consciousness of God's omnipresence. And once we have that restored, we understand that we have a direct connection with God wherever we go, whatever we do. That every moment is holy because wherever we go, we're standing before God. And by the way, with this in mind, you can understand something which confounds and perplexes people and yes, even vexes them. I just really wanted to say vex. <laughs> I get so few opportunities. <laughs> Which is, why is there so much halacha? Are the rabbis control freaks? Why is there a Torah way to do absolutely everything from my first breath in this world to my last breath in this world? And the idea is that everything can be made holy. It's just alerting us to the reality that we dwell amidst the infinite and things that we've decided are mundane are also holy and are also infinite. Just a refresher course, because I love this so much. And I, I found that a lot of people don't know it. 
There is a Torah way to take a shower. And it's so easy, but most people don't know it. So you can serve God in the shower. How do you do it? So there's an order to washing your body. First you wash your head, right? That would be like shampoo. Then you wash your face. Then you wash your heart. Okay, and, and you can even have the kavana famous. Please, God, purify my heart so I can serve you in truth. You can think that or think that while you're washing your heart. Then you wash your right hand, then you wash your left hand, then you wash your right foot, then you wash your left foot, and then whatever you want. Okay, I'll say it again. First you wash your hair, then you wash your face, then you wash your heart, right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot, and then whatever you like. What's beautiful about that is we have this consciousness, like, and I'm talking about people who are really trying. I'm talking about, now I'm talking about the best of us, okay? You go to Shachris, and what's the implied message when you leave Shachris? Okay, goodbye, God, see you at Mincha. <laughs> Wait, where, where did God go? <laughs> God didn't go anywhere. Or how about at a meal? You, you're, you're, you're being very good. You're washing for bread, and then now you, it comes time for the meal. Bye, God, see you at benching. <laughs> Wait, what happened to you? Where did God go? God didn't go anywhere. The Noam Elimelech says that when you eat, you should have these letters before you. Mem, Aleph, Chaf, Lamed, Macho, which adds up to 91, which is two divine names, Yudke, Vavke, that's 26, and Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud, that's 65. That adds up to 91, which basically means God of heaven and God of earth. Contemplate while you see these letters before you that God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. That this food that I'm chewing right now, right? God is like instilling life through it from heaven into my body. And if the Noam Elimelech said that you should think about that while you're eating, the implied message is you will never run out of new explanations <laughs> of what those letters mean and what that number means. Because the Torah is infinite and we, do, and we dwell amidst the infinite. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.